Yo. There's certain things that I can talk to you about that I can't really with my dad. I don't think we should talk about this. Okay, this is, uh, again, uh, another conversation between uh, Lynn and Jen about sex. And uh, today we're going to be talking about a, a subject that really caught both of us in, in the last week. And uh, uh, that is the subject of sexual harassment, uh, and not only of uh, girls and women, but also uh, sexual harassment of boys and all individuals. And it's really come to our attention through this national debate that's been going on in the election and um, has been, I think, very uh, evocative and upsetting for both of us, really. Oh, yeah, it's super upsetting. And I think before we even get started is to talk about, you know, neither of us is really feeling our best today, but it's just such an important topic that I think we, you know, we muscle through and we, we get it done because it's time-sensitive and I think also it's really opened the doors for more people to have these conversations because it's on such a wide level. Yes. I, Jen, I couldn't agree more because uh, the whole area where women and I think girls have been silenced around uh, uh, sexual harassment for decades and to watch the last uh, week and all of the women who, and girls who've come forward with their stories really over time and uh, um, what the response has been in the nation about this has been amazing. It's really a very important issue in the sexual area. Yeah, I think it's been incredible to see that so many women are using their voice. It's so powerful and it means so much to mm -hmm. so many people, I think, because they now know that they're not alone. Yes. Um, I think one of the important things, both of us were struck by the silencing that's yeah. been going on, and even harassment itself, which is defined as unwelcome sexual attention, you know, really has the message contained within it, don't speak out, right. you know, this is normal, you're lesser, you deserve this, and so it contains and silences the person that it's really directed at. Yeah, it's kind of self-perpetuating in that way. It's very hard to overcome. And I think part of what has gotten people to speak out about it, too, is I think this is our first time really being able to hear somebody talk about these horrible things and the casualness of the tone in which the candidate talks about these, I mean, I almost can't say, it's just, you know, such hurtful, hateful things, mm -hmm. sexually predatory behavior, and to just talk about it as if, oh, it's totally normal, it's no big deal. It's that casualness that I think has really kind of sparked something in people to speak up and be like, this is really not okay. Yeah, and what you're referring to is our recent uh, electoral debates and surrounding discussion. Oh, yeah, and sorry. one of our candidates has come forward in the United States and really normalized uh, sexually abusive behavior, you know, of girls and women. And I think uh, um, the support that he's received from a group of the country is also upsetting, really, oh, yeah. to hear. And uh, uh, in addition to this, you and I both talked about how our adolescent girls uh, and children girl children we work with are subject to a huge amount of sexual harassment in the schools. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think, you know, I'm trying to think through all my clients. I see quite a few um, teenage girls and also boys. Um, but pretty much every single one, if not, you know, maybe there are a couple exceptions, have experienced harassment. And they're pretty young, I would say, mm-hmm. you know, starting age 12, definitely, mm-hmm. if not before. Yeah. They've had their ex- first experience with sexual harassment. How do they bring that up in the sessions with you? Well, that's actually interesting because they don't bring it up as sexual harassment. They talk about, I'm so annoyed by this boy or, you know, I don't like the way this feels. I've been feeling horrible lately and I don't know why. And we'll talk about, well, tell me what's been going on. And they'll say, you know, well, this boy's been calling me names or they've been saying these horrible things about me. Yeah. And I sort of have to be the one to bring up, you know, that really sounds like harassment. And a lot of the times their initial reaction is like, no, no way. Uh-huh. Yeah. Is that what you see as well? I do. And what you said about all the, the girls we see in over, I'd say, decades, I've seen thousands. Um, but in the last 10 years, uh, sexual harassment of ch- girl children and uh, adolescent girls is much, much worse yeah. And I, you know, we will talk a little bit about why we think that's the case. But I would say every single girl has come in and described multiple episodes of being sexually harassed. It can be by a babysitter. It can be by a friend at school, somebody at the church. It can be online, often online now, and uh, around all types of online behavior. Um, you know, so it certainly occurs if they have a, a site where they posted things, the girl themselves, but it occurs in a lot of other ways, too. Yeah. Um, so I think it's very, very difficult for the girls today. And I don't think they're really aware of what sexual harassment is. You know, I think that's part of it, too. I think that is part of it. I think there's also a disconnect almost where, you know, to accept that you're being sexually harassed and maybe that you haven't done something about it. You know, I don't think that's very easy to internalize for a person. Yes. Um, One of the things about this speech this week by Michelle Obama in New Hampshire, who spoke out against the uh, candidate's behavior, um, she was talking about how she had been harassed as a girl and received unwelcome comments about her body and how hard it was for her, you know, both to speak out about that and how badly it made her feel. And I I think that that is such an important part to be aware of, that when you're harassed, you lose your energy. You can't really respond. Your self-esteem falls. And many of the girls that I work with, you know, have feelings of suicide related to being harassed and um, definitely don't have that energy and anger that they need to respond to that type of attack. Yeah, um, so it's that's a, a big thing I see, actually, you bringing that up, the anger. There's yeah. an absence of anger. Yeah, that's what I liked about Michelle's talk, because I think she mobilized anger you know, in a very organized and uh, empathetic way to really say we've got to yeah. organize together to really lift ourselves up and fight this. And uh, that's so important to use those negative feelings to really fight back against this type of behavior. And I think she showed in a beautiful way, as you were saying, you know, that it's really 
that her vulnerability, her ability to show those feelings, to talk about how much it hurts. You know, I, I remember her voice cracking and I watching the video and you could even see kind of the tears that were in her eyes. And that takes courage, I think. And it's kind of sad that in this world, it takes courage to be honest about your feelings, but that's the environment that we're in, the silence, the don't show that it's seen as a weakness. And it's really not. It's powerful and it connects people. Mm -hmm. Before this uh, uh, broadcast, we're really talking about um, uh, our own experiences being silenced. And uh, uh, I was involved in a very large sex discrimination case in the 1980s, even before the Anita Hill situation regarding sexual harassment. And um, our attorneys recommended that we did not put the harassment component into the case. And we won a class action finding for all the women faculty who were involved with this about discrimination. But I've always felt strange and badly about being silenced about the harassment part. Um, So I think it's been going on for a, a very long time. And what you're saying about Michelle you know, the courage and the emotion to speak out and to fight it and to really say that this can't go on and we have to organize together and work together to prevent it yeah. is so important. It's really so important. And it is an emotional situation. We do feel badly about it. Um, it affects every woman. And when our daughters or our friends or our sisters are sexually harassed, it affects all of us, really. Can you talk a little bit, too, about your experience and what was the reasoning kind of behind not bringing up sexual harassment? Um, Before Anita Hill um, spoke out in the early 90s, uh, and it's important, I think, to say that she wasn't speaking out freely. She was actually forced to speak out through uh, congressional hearings that asked her questions and really brought out the harassment that she uh, reported experiencing uh, from her boss, and uh, who was Clarence Thomas, currently a Supreme Court justice. And uh, it was very, I think, uh, shocking to women in the country at that time, because many women, I think, had been experienced harassment, but it never thought that you could speak out against it. So silencing around sexual harassment was massive. And uh, our case had begun as a group of women at the University of California fighting for uh, equal rights, tenure, pay, all kinds of things for women, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, which we, as I said, won. But we did not address uh, the fact that we had many had experienced sexual harassment in the departments that we were in from male faculty. And um, we did not effectively, I think, really speak out about that. The uh, attorney said we would never win uh, if we put that part in because it was a kind of he said, she said situation. And, um, you know, and that's still um, the situation, I think, in harassment cases. Um, I've, <laughs> after this happened, we did win and we did not win around the harassment. Uh, but um, uh, I have worked with many, many women in legal cases, and that same situation is thought to be true. And girls, too, if it's just your voice against someone harassing you, it's very, very difficult to speak out. 
Although studies indicate, you and I both know this because we work with kids, that about 96% of kids who come forward you know, around abuse are telling the truth. Yeah. So the greater likelihood is the person coming forward is telling the truth. And it's not really a 50-50 weighted situation there. And I think a lot of people are shocked by that statistic. I mean, I think that's hard to swallow for people. And I think that also plays a lot into kind of why people don't speak out. I think it's important to understand that. And I think also, you know, given that this is the case, what can we do to help people? I couldn't agree more. You know, I've thought about that case years ago, and I, I think that's why I work so hard to help other women in these situations. I think uh, talking about how rare it is for uh, a woman or girl to come forward with an abuse case and not have really experienced that, I think that's very helpful. And when we read in the papers this last week of all the cases of women everywhere talking about the harassment they've experienced worldwide, I think we can really see what a big problem it is. Um, I think for girls who are struggling with it, or women, uh, or people, because about 20% of all boys are harassed too. I think to be aware of that, that sexual harassment of boys occurs, and harassers don't respect gender. You know, they're not working one way or the other. So I think be aware of that. Learn about it, you know, what it is. I think that can make a really big difference. Um, you can speak out for others first. A little bit uh, along the lines of what I was talking about, it was easier for me to speak out for others, you know, defend their behavior than it was really for me to understand my own situation and speak out directly there. And that's um, what I see with a lot of my clients too, is they'll actually start kind of standing up for other girls in their class And sometimes through that, they're able to stand up for themselves, but more often they still find it a struggle. And what happens is because they stand up for somebody else, that person ends up standing up for them. Right. And I've seen that make a really big difference, actually. I was thinking, too, about what Michelle Obama said when she talked about we lift each other higher when we really work together as a team. And I I think it is much easier to speak out for others. A lot of the girls I work with are really impressed when boys speak out. and limit the harassment against them. And they feel very protected and validated when boys can do that and men can do that. So I think that's very important for boys and men to speak out, to know about harassment, and really to stand up for those who are experiencing it. And I think that is key to kind of changing some of the things too because of the culture that we're in, which is kind of more takes a male's perspective more seriously. Do you, I mean, you know, you say that, and I, even though I've lived a lot of years, uh, I, I think that there's truth to that, that women, uh, part of the problem with sexual harassment of uh, women and girls is that women have been devalued, yeah. you know, sexually for as long as I've been alive and hundreds of years before, for sure. Um, and I think it's very hard uh, but I think it's still true that men speaking out, you know, carry a certain weight because the assumption is, well, a woman, of course, would say this, you know. Right. Uh, and it's devaluing of women. And uh, with respect to the recent candidates, pro- you know, situation, we've heard uh, him devalue the women that have spoken out against uh, his behavior. Right. Um, and, you know, it's, of course, they're women. They would say this, that kind of thing he's expressed. 
Um, I think that, again, uh, means that women have to work as a group. Mm -hmm. They have to find support from their mothers and their sisters and their friends and their teachers. Um, There's a lot that we need to do together to speak out against it so that women's voices are as strong as men's voices in this area. Yeah, I think that's what's really powerful is when women come together, they can amplify each other's voices and then the message can really have a chance to be heard. And I think that's frustrating for a lot of women too, like that their voice just because it's their story that, you know, that won't be heard, that it will be devalued. I think at the same time, we have to deal with the fact that if that's the current reality we live in, we need to focus on, well, how do we change that? And we change that by helping to amplify other women's voices, and they can help amplify ours. And then we can start to really fight to have a voice. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more there, Jennifer. Uh, When I mentioned that case of long ago, I mentioned Um, that I was sad about not including the sexual harassment component. But when the class action finding was uh, reported by the Equal Opportunity Commission, and they found that women as a group had experienced that discrimination, the power of that statement, that it's a group of women, that others too have experienced it, and that others know what it feels like, and that uh, it is seen as a hurtful thing, is incredibly supportive. Um, And that's exactly what uh, the current candidate is not doing. He's devaluing Mm -hmm. women's experiences. You know, he's isolating individual women with their stories and not seeing that this is really something that women suffer from as a group. Yeah. And I think along those lines, too, is part of the way in which women are dealt with when they bring things up is that silence is sort of forced on them even more. They're made to feel at fault. They're made to be targets. You must have brought this on yourself somehow. Instead of the first reaction of someone bringing up, hey, I've been sexually harassed and, you know, even the likelihood of them saying that, but to share an experience that you can identify as sexual harassment, I think that that gets really complicated because then it becomes, well, if I say something, maybe I won't be believed, and then maybe I'll be a target. And is that better than just not saying anything at all? Right. And many of the girls, the teen girls I work with, you know, talk about something called slut shaming. Yes. Where if they come forward and they say they've been sexually harassed, um, that they will be labeled a slut, the target you're talking about. Yeah. And they will be shamed in front of a group sexually which is very degrading. And so that has continued. You know, that's a new thing, I think, in the millennium, you know, a new way of talking about it. Uh, Mm. Girls have always been sexually harassed. Um, After Anita Hill spoke out, the American Psychiatric Association wrote uh, a book or collection of articles, and I participated in writing about girls and adolescents and sexual harassment then. Uh, But um, the harassment was more limited there wasn't the support and amplification of the media. There wasn't the immediacy of girls getting negative responses about harassment in the media. Um, so it was less exposure. Uh, but in the current days, many girls are very afraid to speak out in their schools and online about sexual harassment and what is happening to them because it's really been amplified in a negative way. 
Yeah, I see that very much too with Instagram, with Twitter. You know, I hear a lot of the times from my clients, we'll talk about, well, how come you don't feel you can speak out? And they'll say, well, because if I say this, then somebody might say this about me on Twitter, or maybe these people won't follow me, or maybe they'll start sending me these horrible tweets. And you, and it's hard because with teens, they don't feel they can just disconnect from Twitter, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Like it's so much a part of their lives that if they don't have, if they're not engaged online, then they kind of don't have that aspect of their life. But they also don't know how to manage. And I'm not sure a lot of adults know how to manage being that constantly connected and the potential exposure to such negative backlash. Yeah. It brings us to what can we do, you know, as a culture, as a group. We've talked about how women can support each other around sexual harassment. We can speak out for our friends. Mm -hmm. You know, we can stand up for our girls. We can be aware of it happening to boys. So all of that. Yeah. Uh, but what can we do uh, as a group and as a culture? And I think Michelle's speech really opened up the idea that in the next, uh, you know, presidency, we might have an opportunity to really even have a large initiative or or group of women working together on this important issue, and men too. I think men need to really be included in this, and their input is extremely important. I agree with you entirely on that. I was just kind of thinking about how mm. powerful that would be, mm. and mm. I think where I thought you were going was mm. in saying that, you know, with Michelle Obama's speech, I think what she alludes to is we need a huge cultural shift. She talks about, mm. you know, how is this going to affect our girls? How is this going to affect our boys? And it's really, I think, about starting all the way when you're young with kind of addressing the culture and creating a new one. So being able to talk about gender roles, being able to talk about how do you develop healthy boundaries and mm. how do you respect yourself and respect others. Mm. And I think that really needs to start at a very, very young age because the cultural conditioning starts at a very young age. Absolutely right. Uh, perhaps the person who's done the most work in this area already is a uh, colleague of mine who went to the University of Wisconsin with me decades ago, and her name is Nan Stein, and she writes about sexual harassment of children and uh, uh, girls and boys, and she develops programs really for schools and homes and organizations to implement very early targeting, helping kids have good boundaries and helping kids know what harassment is and helping kids stand up for each other. And programs like NANS, you know, they're pulled in often uh, when a school's had trouble. Yeah. You know, they'll have to implement it. It'll be part of a legal settlement and she'll have to consult and uh, that'll be the, the way it changes things. But um, uh, it's important, I think, for everybody to think about as a, our country how could we implement this very early in kindergarten, preschool, really have awareness of boundaries of, of sexuality? Because you and I both believe sexual education should occur early. Yeah. And education about sexual harassment is a key part of sexual education. I think to build on that, too, you know, one of the great examples um, that I look at is the Netherlands. They start talking about these things very young and it's not all just about sexual talk but it's really about how do you show affection to your peers when you're in kindergarten 
right? That has yeah. a lot to do with boundaries. How do you respect mm. somebody who maybe doesn't want a hug that you want mm. to give a hug to? And if you start having those conversations, it's that kind of culture that builds into as we get older and, and become more sexually developed, those boundaries shift some, but the practice of being able to respect somebody's boundaries, being able to respect that maybe you want to do something and the other person doesn't want it. And how do you reconcile that? How do you deal with that? How do you stop yourself? I think that starts very young with things like that. And the activities that you talked about where Nan Stein kind of has a curriculum, and it's not just her, there's there's a bunch of other people Absolutely. there too. Yes. Um, but the curriculum is really powerful because instead of just talking about sex, it talks about boundaries. And I think that's an easier topic for schools to talk about. But if you talk about boundaries, then you have a foundation on which to talk about sexual boundaries. Absolutely. And, you know, we haven't yet talked about it. We've been talking about girls and boys, but there's a lot of gender-based sexual harassment uh, toward uh, youth that are transitioning sexually. You know, there's a lot of targeting of gay youth. Mm -hmm. um, it's a huge area, and that's where the boundary work is important. Those kids have got to be able to speak out, feel good about themselves, be supported by other people to speak out, yeah. and... Kids have to, other kids have to understand very young that they can't intrude on those boundaries, that it's really important not to do that, and that there will be sanctions if they do do that. There will be discussion. People say that's not okay, and that needs to happen really very early. And we do not see this type of environment in our schools. Um, there's not this type of discussion. A lot of schools are afraid, I think, to speak out. Uh, uh, you know, they ignore it. Uh, so it's very important, I think, for parents to get involved with schools and say, we've got to have these programs available on sexual harassment. I also think parents can do a lot with their kids just by themselves, by talking about it and role modeling healthy behavior in this area. I think that's a really powerful part. And I think it goes back again to understanding that it's not just a culture around the, the mm -hmm. sexual culture, but really it's it's a culture that abuses and degrades these people kind of all across the board, but in particular when it comes to sexual harassment, that is particularly tricky in our culture because of the taboos around sex and all of that. But really women are degraded, they're harassed, not just sexually, but also just harassed in general. I couldn't agree with you more, Jennifer, and that's it's hard to see it. You know, and it, it's hard to admit it. You yeah. know, American women have been silenced. And it, it's at all levels, you know, all the way up. Uh, that's why I think it, it was so wonderful, really, to hear Michelle speak out about it, because it role models a, a very different type of behavior. I think it's also fair to say there are a lot of active feminists and researchers and writers in this country who fight this. You know, there are people fighting this, but it has to really be fought with every girl and, you know, with all of us, and everyone has to have the support about it. I think parents can um, stand up in families because I think sexual harassment goes on in families. So I think parents can speak out about it there. Um, that's a way to really change things, too, within our family structure. Um, I think parents can also express their own opinions about it with respect to the media. This is an ideal time now. 
I think, for parents to say, you know, let's talk about how this candidate impacts on our boys. You know, what he is saying, what do our boys think about this? And a lot of the boys I've worked with are, are very just disheartened, disgusted, repelled by this type of behavior. Yeah. The word that comes to mind for me that I've heard boys use is it's appalling. Yes. And how do we encourage boys to have more conversation, to really be different kinds of boys? How do we encourage boys to be strong and powerful and not emulate this type of very unhealthy behavior? Which is seen as strong, I think, paradoxically. Right. That's what I was going to say is I think we have to redefine that word. What does it mean to be a strong man? Yes. Or a strong boy. And a strong boy speaks out for others. He protects others. He knows his own boundaries. You know, he's able to articulate and, and really be there in a different way. Yeah. And uh, it's easier. I think it's very easy with this last week to talk about the impact of this on our girls. But it's very, very sad for our boys. Yeah. In fact, I think um, the candidate statements have silenced a lot of our boys and men, too. Some think it's appalling, but some are afraid to speak out because they don't want to be labeled one way or the other. Um, they may have had experiences where they've been pulled into harassment or harassing, yeah. or they've been harassed, and uh, those things are hard to talk about. And I think that in a culture that sees men that talk about things as weak, that creates a very hard environment, because then if you bring it up, you also become a target. But sometimes, I, what I see too is sometimes boys will bring things up, and girls will come in and say kind of like, okay, like I get that that's happening for you, but what about me? What about mm-hmm. us? Mm-hmm. And I think that that can make boys feel very singled out too. Or, you know, there are cases where boys have brought up that they're being harassed and it's dealt with very differently because it's seen in this, well, you know, boys will be boys. And I think that's a very, mm-hmm. very harmful message that we that is put out there. Well, boys will be boys, but what exactly is that? Right. I mean, ideally, we want to believe that both boys and girls' behavior can be changed. And we want to believe, you know, and this brings up the whole idea that there's been the argument that boys' behavior is hardwired or... 30, 40 years ago, they used to say it was brought on by hormones and testosterone. Now it's hardwired. And well, everybody's behavior is somewhat hardwired, but we're all able to change in some ways. And, you know, I think it's important to talk about how that happens. But I agree with you looking at how boys can change and the type of education program we were talking about that starts early and talks about sex and sexual harassment opens this up for boys, too, to think differently and be differently. I think what was interesting, too, is what I was reading is that when the Title IX and sexual harassment and um, all of that was brought up in schools as a policy rather than just kind of a general, like, this is how things should be, but there were really written rules, more boys were reporting sexual harassment. That's uh, one of the very interesting things. And just to say that Title VII defines sexual harassment as unwelcome sexual behavior, and that was in 1980. And then Title IX came forward and talked about sexual uh, behavior and discrimination in the schools and really developed it. Not long after that, uh, there were a lot of reported cases. Boys and girls came forward 
in the 80s and 90s against sexual harassment. One of them is the famous Katie Lyle case in Minnesota. But more boys came forward. I actually believe that that's related to what we talked about earlier, the silencing of American girls and women. And girls are shamed by sexual harassment. Um, The slut shaming that the kids talk about today is really, I'll be labeled a slut if I speak out. And I think the girls in the 80s were not able really to speak out in that way. I wrote about that in a volume that was printed that we talked about earlier. And maybe we'll put on our website some of that information. Because uh, a lot of girls felt they were sluts, even in the 80s, if they spoke out against harassment. So I think there is certain support for boys. But boys are labeled negatively, too, if they speak out. So how do we support kids who are talking about this? It's really, really an important question. And I think that's the hard question, because as you Mm -hmm. said, with the slut shaming, some of what my clients experience is that, you know, whether I say something or don't say something, I seem to get this label. Mm -hmm. And whether I'm actually sexually, you know, active or not, I get this label. And a lot of girls actually lose friends over it. And so then it becomes even more isolating. So I think it's hard because you want to encourage people to speak up as we're doing. And yet we also have to acknowledge the reality of sometimes when they do speak up, these things happen. They're more isolated. People at school treat them differently. I've heard sometimes teachers treat me differently, you know. And so really, I think it's going to take a large shift, but still we have to encourage the conversations. We have to build more safe places where people can have these conversations. And I think that is actually crucial, the safe places. And this is part of the reason that we do these podcasts is because we want to really increase conversations in the country and really increase safety around sexual discussion for uh, our kids, but also for the adults. So, Jennifer, I want to thank you for this discussion today. It's really, uh, it's brought up a lot, I think, for both of us and for a lot of people. I think so. And, you know, thank you. I mean, I think this is a wonderful opportunity. I think it's fantastic that we're able to kind of share different perspectives, too, because, you know, we have our different ages Mm -hmm. and we have different clients. And I think in the end, it really helps to be able to have all these different perspectives and to be able to just share. Mm -hmm. Especially in the area around sexuality, which has always been hard to talk about. So thanks again. This episode of Let's Talk About Sex with Lynn and Jen is not intended as a substitute for seeing your own mental health provider. We are here to initiate conversations about sex. Let's keep the conversations going. You can find us on Twitter at TalkingSexPod or email us at TalkingSexPodcast at gmail.com. We also want to give special thanks to Nathan Diffie for our podcast cover art and our wonderful editor, Julia W.D. Harrison. Lynn Ponton and I, Jennifer Wong, are the executive producers.